On this episode, I'm in the room with J.R. Vassar discussing what to do with our insatiable desire for glory. Welcome to In the Room, episode number nine. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me at ryanhughley.com and on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to In the Room, the concept is pretty simple. I want to bring you In the Room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. We all have something to learn from everyone, so regardless of the guest or the subject matter, I hope you're going to find this helpful. This week, I'm in the room with J.R. Vassar. He's the lead pastor of Church of the Cross in Grapevine, Texas. He's also the founding pastor of Apostles Church in New York City. He's written a convicting new book called Glory Hunger, God, the Gospel, and Our Quest for Something More. In our conversation, we discuss how to transition between ministries well, uh, the narcissism that pervades social media, and how to satisfy the glory hunger we all have. JR's book is painful in the most perfect way. So get settled and come on into the room for my conversation with JR Vassar. Well, JR, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah. uh, just want to start by uh, saying thank you for writing for me in most recent weeks what is the most painful and convicting book uh, <laughs> that I've read. Um, really looking forward to digging into that. But I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, your background for people who don't know you. So uh, I know that you're living in uh, the Dallas area now. Is that where you're from originally? Uh, yes, yeah, sort of. So I moved around my whole life, uh, but I moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area when I was a junior in high school Okay, and uh, went to Grapevine High School and actually attended the church that I'm currently pastoring. So wow. uh, I've kind of come uh, full scale, but uh, then went to Dallas Baptist University and then went to Dallas Seminary and then spent about four years uh, as a teaching pastor at a church in Dallas. Oh, okay. Um, so th- this is kind of home for us. Were, were you a... Like, was your dad in the military? Why'd you guys move around so much? Oh, uh, yeah. My, da- my dad worked in the oil field. He was a roughneck. So oh, okay. we traveled. Wherever there was oil, that's where we, we went. And so we moved around. I, I think I went to 14 different schools, wow. uh, kindergarten through, uh, through my senior year. Uh, so we were constantly on the go, constantly moving. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when did you actually, so were your parents, it sounds like you grew up in the church. So your parents were believers? Yeah, so my my parents uh, were good church going folks, and uh, they they took us to church uh, regularly, and and I think the Lord just uh, even early on gave uh, just kind of felt a sensitivity to to Him, and so uh, I would think I was eight years old uh, when I publicly acknowledged uh, my my trust and, and faith in Jesus, and was baptized in a little little church called Calvary Baptist Church in Panhandle, Texas. Um, and then, yeah, gr- grew up really going to church, trying to be faithful to Jesus, even at an early age was pretty, pretty passionate about sharing my faith with my friends. And, uh, which means I grew up lonely and, uh, <laughs> and, and my parent, my parents ended up divorcing when I was, uh, I guess I was in the seventh grade. And so, and then my mom ended up remarrying and, and that's, that's what brought us to, to the grapevine area. But so, yeah, I, I grew up pretty, um, pretty faithful in the church. And, uh, I think kind of checked out a little bit, uh, my sophomore year of high school. Um, but then just had a real resurgence of my faith, my junior and senior year of high school. Okay. And so then went to Bible college seminary, and then you said you spent four years as a teaching pastor. Yeah. So right out of call, uh, right out of high school, um, 
I think the summer before my senior year, I went to a Carmen concert. You remember Carmen? Oh, Ryan, totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been to a Carmen so, where he passed the giant buckets to take an offering <laughs> in the middle of it. That's like the one thing I remember. It was phenomenal. Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I was a fan of his music. Maybe I was, <laughs> but we're not going to go there. Okay. But the guy was quoting scripture nonstop through the entire concert. And I just realized, man, I... I I don't know God's word. And so my senior year, I just dove into the scriptures and that's when I sensed God was calling me into the ministry. And so right out of high school, I went on to Dallas Baptist university and then went to Dallas seminary. And so I served at Lake point church in Rockwall, Texas. I was a teaching pastor there and a guy named Steve Stroop and they were really passionate about, uh, church planting. And so they were planting churches in several different cities and, the more I was there, I, I just felt a real call to church planting. And so 2005, we ended up uh, leaving that church. Uh, they blessed us and sent us out and supported us. And we planted a church in Manhattan, in New York City, there in the Upper East Side. Did you guys parachute in there, just you and you and your wife? We did. It was my, me, my wife, and we had two kids at the time. And um, man, they, they, they couldn't help us at all. Those kids, I, I had a five-year-old daughter. I was trying to teach her how to work QuickBooks. She didn't know what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. My 17-month-old son had never even heard of Excel. So we were, yeah. we were kind of on our own there. And uh, we moved there in January of 05. And by March, had about 11 people that we had connected with just randomly and started having a Bible study in our home and then eventually launched uh, a church out of our, kind of out of, that, out of that first gathering in our apartment. And um, by the grace of God, it just, the Lord blessed it and grew to, uh, I think currently they're at four congregations. Uh, but we left in 2013. Uh, yeah. so we were there almost nine years. Yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that transition out of apostles and, and now to, to church of the cross. Cause like I'm a founding pastor, I planted my church. Um, I, I can't imagine that it was an easy decision to transition away from, a city and a church that you poured so much uh, as a family of your time and your energy into. So what was it exactly that led to the transition for you guys? Yeah, we, we, um, you know, the ministry was, was flourishing. Uh, but I think the last two and a half years there, uh, I think the city was just starting to take a toll on my wife and, uh, and we had a third child while we were there, but I think my, my two oldest, uh, we're just facing some unique challenges. Uh, and man, we, we prayed and, uh, we, we actually had a scheduled sabbatical, took a sabbatical and spent a lot of time with, uh, some of the elders of a church here in the Dallas area that loved us well and served us well. And, uh, in conversation with them, our elders, uh, back at apostles church, um, I felt for the sake of my family's health. Uh, you know, I, th- I think some people just blossom in certain soils and it was becoming clear to me that the soil of the city was not the best place for my wife. And, and, and daughter and, and, and my middle, uh, my middle child to really, to really flourish and bloom. And so we made the tough decision that, uh, I, I want to be in a place where our ministry flourishes and my family flourishes. And so, uh, for the sake of, of my family's, uh, health, uh, we, we went ahead and stepped down from there and, and, and moved uh, here, not knowing what we were going to do. We just moved back to the Dallas Fort Worth area. Uh, we lived with, <laughs> lived with my in-laws for about nine months in a little town called Caddo Mills. Wow. So I went, I went from about, I don't know, 2,500 people in my block to about a thousand people in the town. And, uh, it was quite a, quite a change. Uh, but we spent about nine months there just praying and figuring out what the Lord had for us next. And this opportunity opened up here at Church of the Cross and just 
felt the Lord affirming that call. And so, yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I mean, I think that's a really uh, awesome example that you've set for so many. I remember when I assessed with the Acts 29 network, which is historically a, a, a more urban church planting network than not, <clears throat> uh, especially at the time. I remember sitting in my assessment and, and knowing that I was going to be planting in a suburban context. And I literally asked my assessors like, so like, am I going to be looked down upon? Am I going to be the redheaded stepchild? Cause I'm not in, in like a hardcore urban center. And, uh, but there, there was a day and an age when I think there was a real air about like, if you really love Jesus, you go to the hardest city possible. And yeah. so I think to put your family before that and to move a place where both ministry and family flourishes, I just, we need more, more of that. I think that's a great example. Well, I appreciate that. That encouragement. Uh, yeah, it, I think leaving the city, um, you know, we, we, we struggled, I think, in, in starting the church. We, we realized around year five, we were calling people to the city as passionately as we were calling them to Jesus. Hmm. And so we were inadvertently creating a new measure of righteousness. Like there are, there's a Christ, there are Christians and then there are really serious Christians right. who love the city and will sacrifice for it and serve it and lay their life down for it. And and so we had to back off that and say, listen, more than anything else, you need to love and follow Jesus. And so more than you want to stay in the city, you need to want to follow Jesus. And more than you want to leave the city, you need to want to follow Jesus. And, and I think having that shift and publicly standing up and telling that to our people about year five, um, and then around, I, you know, almost right at year nine, the Lord, uh, said, how much do you really believe that? And so we, we just did our best to follow him, hmm. uh, and, and he let us here. Well, I mean, more more often than not, pastors and ministry leaders and just Christians in general are are not going to be in the same church like for their whole life. There's going yeah. to be some amount of transition, and so as like, if, I mean, I I don't know the whole story, but from from the outside looking in and hearing your story, it sounds like you guys handled your transition really well. You hear so many horror stories, uh, about those kind of transitions not going well. And, uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, what are some of the important factors that ministry leaders in particular, based on your experience should really keep in mind when they're transitioning between churches and ministries? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for, for me, especially having planted a church and, um, you know how much of your heart gets wrapped up in that. Yeah. Um, I had to realize, and I had a, a guy who was walking with me through some of this, to realize that, you know, it's not as if Apostles Church was a part of my story. And so when I left, I had to somehow control the outcomes of my departure and make sure that the story lived on and yeah. uh, that it looked a certain way and, you know, acted a certain way. I had a friend basically just tell me, look, you actually are part of Apostle's story. It was God's heart to start a church in the city, and He allowed you to be a part of it. And your part's done. That's awesome. And so you don't need to try to outcome, you know, control the outcomes of your departure. And so that was the first thing for me, just to be able be able to say, it's not my church; it's Jesus's church. I, it's not a part of my story primarily. I'm a part of its story. My part's over. And we had tried to really develop a plurality of leadership there. And there's a group of guys there that. They love Jesus. They're men of prayer. They, 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 they're men who preach the gospel. And so there was, there was, they've done excellent. You know, they've just yeah. continued to stay the course. And, uh, you know, and so because I, I made that transition in my mind, this is not, I don't have to preserve what God's done here. So I don't need to be calling these guys, checking in on them. Hey, how's it going? What's going yeah. on there? I was able just to say, you know what? God's, God's taken me out and 
he's given that responsibility to them. And, and we've had, we've had a great relationship since then and, and maintain, uh, contact. In fact, they were in Dallas for an X 29 event. We were just able to sit around a uh, fire pit in my backyard and just laugh and, and enjoy great. memories together. Uh, and I think coming into a church though, I think the biggest lesson I'm learning is to celebrate more than you critique and you can come in and you just, you just start looking at all the things that you wouldn't have done it that way, or man, this has to change. And, and you can really, if you're not careful, begin to discredit people's experience of God that they've had in this church for years, because you come in and deconstruct everything that they're doing. Right. And so to be able to come in and go, where do I see evidences of grace among this people that I can celebrate and rejoice in? And at the same time, be realistic and go, yeah, there's some things here that really need to change. And so I think taking a patient pace while celebrating what God's been doing there, and at the same time, capturing imagination with what you think God wants to do um, in these next years, uh, that's, that's been the great lesson for me. And, and, and really realizing the distinction between a gospel urgency and just angst, you know, like, wow. no, there's a real urgency that we, that we have to go in this direction. We have to do this. And then just being angst ridden over the way things are, how slowly it's changing. And if you keep that long game in mind that, you know, God willing, I'll be here for I'd love to finish my ministry out here. You know, I think you have to enter every ministry with that kind of mindset. So if you keep that long game, then I think some of that angst kind of dies a little bit. You maintain gospel urgency and gospel ambition, but you, you want to maintain it in such a way that you're not discrediting the people's past experience of God. And you're not simply, you know, deconstructing everything, but you're really just capturing imagination with, uh, with the beauty of the gospel and calling people to, uh, to things that the gospel calls us to. And so it's been good lessons for me. I love that. Just that the, the difference between angst and gospel urgency. And I find, I think I have a difficult time sometimes differentiating between those two. So that's good. Um, so tell me about like the church that you're at now. So you, you went to this church when you were young. So how old is this church? Where is it at now? And, and your lead pastor there now. Um, and tell me a little bit about that transition and what you're doing now. Yeah, so the church um, is, I think it's between 50 and 60 years old. It's multi-generational. Some of the sweetest, kindest, uh, loving and welcoming people you're going to meet. Um, and it's it's been a church that I think traditionally has uh, been kind of event-driven and event mentality. Uh, it's a smaller church. I, th- I think when I got here, maybe a church of 320 or so. Okay. Um, just really sweet, loving people. And so what we've tried to do is move them away from church as a place um, to really thinking about church as a people who order their everyday lives together around Jesus and his mission. And, um, and so we, we've, we've had some things that they've done here traditionally that are big, big events uh, that we've kind of scrapped and retired and told hard? people, uh, you know, I, I, I thought it was going to be hard. Um, yeah. One, one particular event they did at Christmas time every year that end for the last nine years, and it has massive exposure in the community. Um, and we walked our elders just through some revisioning and rethinking about what is God calling us to be as a people and uh, who's the gospel calling us uh, to be. And the elders themselves said, man, I think we, we need to retire this. And 
You know, Steve Timmis, his book, Everyday Church, yeah. they have this line in there that, that our life together is the evangelistic event. Yeah. And so I think that's the shift that's beginning to happen among the people. And, okay. um, you know, the, the, the man who pastored the church before me uh, left uh, his role here to, to join Life Action Ministries. So he's still a part of our church. And wow. uh, that's been great. So I'm actually having preaching for me in a couple of weeks. And um, so that's been really good to have the former pastor here and for me to, sure. to sit down with him and say, hey, I could use your advice on this particular pastoral situation. And he's been really gracious and generous. So We'll be back in the room shortly, but first I want to ask a favor. Can you jump over to iTunes when you have a second and leave me a review about how much you love In the Room? Unless you hate it, and then don't worry about a review at all, just email me or something. Your reviews help us increase our visibility on iTunes. And as always, if you like this episode, you can help spread the word by sharing the link on social media. Thanks so much for your support, and now back to the conversation. I, I am, uh, I'm anxious to talk about this new book, <clears throat> Glory Hunger. Um, and so let me just see if I can sort of summarize the premise for people and you can correct me if I'm missing anything here, but basically the overarching premise of the book is that we all have this innate desire to matter and to make a difference, to leave a mark. And you argue that that desire is given to us by God has been distorted by the fall and that really then only Jesus can redeem that desire. And that so many of us then are living with this hunger and this longing for, glory ultimately. So is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah. I think you actually summarized the book better than I wrote it. That's actually really good. Good. I should have had you write the back cover. Yeah. It's excellent. (laughs) Yeah. Could have done that. I'll tweet it for you at very least. It is excellent. (laughs) So I just want to hear a little bit about why you wrote this book. Like, I mean, I, I blog and I get bogged down with a blog post. (laughs) So a book is a pretty big undertaking. And so I just wonder what is it exactly that prompted you like, you know, this kind of deep burden in you, this book needs to be written and I'm the guy to write it. So where did that come from for you? Uh, probably because, uh, I, I'm a glory hog and, um, and I think just out of the Lord's work in my own heart about, about that, um, you know, wanting to, I think wanting to share that message, it kind of start, back in 2010, I preached, um, a message on the fear of man. And I, uh, um, at the village church here in, in Dallas. Okay. And the Lord just really used that message. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of feedback and a lot of, um, a lot of buzz about that. And so Chandler's used to that kind of stuff. I wasn't used to that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and the more, the, the more I began to, to teach some of that stuff, the more I began to see how much this resonated in people that they're, um, that John 12 passage that people love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. And, and so I just begin to, I literally, I remember asking my wife and some friends to pray for me because I think that God might, might desire for me to write a book on this, uh, some, right. sometime. And, uh, and then God opened the door with crossway. So some of it was just God's work in my own heart and then seeing him work through, uh, through this message. Yeah. Well, I love the way <clears throat> that you state in the book that we're, we're created for glory. And you talk about how God really showered glory upon Adam and Eve in the garden. And I, I think that there's going to be some people like even in, I just think that that's going to, that makes some people uncomfortable because I think mm-hmm. we're conditioned as Christians to think like glory is like a God thing. And, and mm-hmm. even just that language, I think. So can you tell me a little bit about like how, 
how, how we're created for glory, how we should think about that in a way that, that might help us be more biblical than just the way that we've been conditioned. Yeah. Well, you know, Psalm 8 says that when that God, you know, he creates man and he set him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And uh, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, uh, you know, you read some of Luther's thoughts about a pre-fall Adam, and he, he talks about uh, having eyesight better than that of a, of yeah. a hawk. Um, he talks about having uh, this, uh, you know, almost superhuman strength where he could wrestle a bear and throw him around like a puppy. And, you know, so Luther gets really vivid with this idea that, um, you know, Adam is free of any kind of weakness or deficiency. or um, And then the fall comes in and just absolutely... Uh, defaces the image of God in man. And there is a loss of glory. And so uh, this idea that God, God created us um, for glory, uh, it, it's this, this idea of, of, of being made in his image, uh, that, that this, the glory of being approved and affirmed by God, that when God looked upon Adam and Eve and all that he made, he said, this is very good. And to have the God of the universe give that as the verdict over your life, you're very good. And not only that verdict, but the, the beauty and the splendor and the greatness um, that, was, that was present in Adam and Eve, um, both individually and in their relationship with one another, was just a thing. I mean, it, it's hard for, we can't even fathom the beauty of that. And it's all lost in the fall. And then it's one for us again. Uh, through Jesus, that he has come to restore to us what Adam lost for us. And so, you know, when Paul talks about the gospel in 2 Thessalonians 2, he, he says, you were called to this through the gospel so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. So the idea of being able to actually share in the very glory of Christ as we're, uh, as we're saved, restored to God, and one day eventually uh, glorified and made, made more in Christ's image. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a, you know, we in, in the book kind of unpacking a little bit about that, about not only is it a restoration of God's verdict over us, but it's also a restoration of beauty and splendor and glory and, um, and it's all ours in the gospel. Yeah, I, I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I realized reading through your book and you, you just mentioned John 12, there's another place in John 5. Uh, where Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So there's these, there's multiple places throughout scripture Mm -hmm. that talk about God glorifying us in a sense Mm -hmm. in that way. But man, to me, I mean, I've grown up in the church. I I can't think of one sermon I've ever heard preached on this. (laughs) And so I had a friend say that one of the things that I should ask you about is like, why do you think that is? If this is all over scripture, why don't we hear more preaching and teaching uh, on this topic? Yeah, and you know maybe we do, but it's just it's it's spoken in different ways. Um, you know, when, when we talk about God glorifying us, I I, I it, we look I look in terms of justification, sanctification, glorification. So yeah. in justification, God gives glory to us in the sense that He declares us right, that he affirms and approves and welcomes and receives. And like Lewis says, that we become objects of his delight, that he delights in us like a father delights in a son or an, or an artist delights in his work. Not merely pities us, but delights in us, that we become an ingredient in the divine happiness. So this idea of God looking upon you saying, I affirm and approve and accept and justify you in Jesus. 
And then in sanctification, to actually have the, 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 the moral beauty of Christ restored in our own life so that those things that come out of us that are inglorious, that are shameful, uh, anger and, and, and malice and rage and gossip and slander and lust and pride and greed, all these things, that the Holy Spirit is renewing us from one degree of glory to the other. As we behold Jesus, we're transformed into his likeness, one degree of glory to the other. So there's one sense where God is bestowing glory on us by changing us from the inside out so that we actually begin to look more and more like our glorious Jesus. And then that last um, glorification of Philippians 3.21, that our lowly bodies will be transformed into his glorious image so that we'll be free of all weakness and, and decay. And so, you know, I think we... We've probably talked about it, but we, I, I don't think we've used the same terminology that I, you know, Jesus uses in John 12 and John 5. So, um, and and I, think, I think there's also a fear of, um, you know, one of the beauties of John Piper's ministries, he's given us such a God-centeredness to say that uh, this is about the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. And one of the glorious things about God is that he's so... Um, uh, he's so secure in himself. He doesn't mind sharing his glory, you know, yeah. and, and it's not, not, not in that I'm not going to share my glory with another, but in the sense that he bestows glory upon right. us, that we get to obtain the glory of Jesus. Uh, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and God's restoring it to us in the gospel. Yeah. Well, you spent a good portion of the book clarifying and warning about <clears throat> some of the various forms that this glory hunger takes. Mm-hmm. And so as a pastor, um, I, I'm just curious how, what are, what are some of the most common manifestations of this glory hunger uh, that you see as you minister to people? Uh, well, you know, if, if we talk about seeing it in pastors versus seeing it just in, in, in regular congregants. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just I think that there are some probably some things that are unique to, to pastors and ministry leaders. Yeah. So maybe it's twofold. How do you see it in general? And then maybe what are the specific areas that as pastors and ministry leaders were, were prone to pursue sure. that? Yeah, so living in New York, uh, people move to New York to make a name for themselves. I mean, it's um, whether it's pursuing a name for yourself in the financial world or the fashion industry or or making it on Broadway. Um, so th- there's just this idea um, among us, um, and I think innate in us, uh, to justify ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to build and manage our reputations, you know? And so that's really what social media has become about. It's a way for you to present a version of yourself that is edited, mm-hmm. um, that you hope would actually, uh, be an envious, uh, image and reputation. So, you know, I think with people, there's just a, a, a desire to be known and loved and admired and people will do anything to get others to pay attention to them. So we, you know, I talk in the book about this, narcissism. I interact with, uh, uh, Twangy's book, uh, the narcissistic epidemic where she just, just basically, uh, uh nails our generation on living in a, a, a culture of the selfie, uh, living in the cult of self that we're just intoxicated with our own reputation, our own image. And you, you can see it in the things that people pursue, the things that people love, uh, the things that people get angry about. And so see it a lot in our people. And it's, it creates such shame because people are pursuing their own glory and continually come up short because we're, we're sinners Mm -hmm. and it just leads to such shame in people's lives and, and so much compromise. I mean, think of how many people have compromised 
their morality just to, to maybe uh, preserve the affection or the acceptance of another person. Yeah. And so this quest for glory usually ends up in shame for all of us, you know? Yeah. Um, and the only way to true glory is, is I think, through, through the path of, of shame, of being able to, to acknowledge our brokenness, acknowledge our need. And like Lewis says, you can't, you can't touch shame. It's like a hot drink. You got to drink it, you yeah. know? Um, and so I, but, it, but in ministry, it turns up in a lot of ways. I think ministers, um, because we're in such an age of globalization, we've lost the art of being a local church pastor. So we're constantly looking over the heads of our sheep and looking at, you know, other platforms and other fields out there. And so, so I, I think, uh, you know, when, when you're a pastor and you're concerned about how many folks are downloading your podcast or you're tweeting and constantly checking to see if it got retweeted um, or you find yourself uh, saying things, wondering how it's going to be received um, instead of wondering if it's faithful. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of things. When you start comparing the size of your church to someone else's or you get discontent uh, with with the size of your church or, and we could just go on and on. You see it all the time. I, I think it's an issue of people not being content with a platform God's entrusted to them. And so they work like crazy to extend their own platform, build their own platform. And I think the heart of that is some glory hunger. Yeah. Um, well, at one point you mentioned how most of us probably, you've already mentioned social media, and I, I, in my, my opinion, the most convicting chapter in the book was chapter four um, on narcissism. And uh, I mean, I've just found myself even all week questioning every tweet and just feeling like I just don't, I don't feel like I should talk anymore. I'm not really sure what's happening in my heart. And so it's raised so many really, really great questions for me. But you mentioned in there about how at some point, most of us probably need to do a fast of some, of, of some kind, particularly in the realm of social media, because of all of, for all of the good that it's capable of, it has major pitfalls. And, yeah. uh, so I wonder what are some of the heart and behavior indicators that you think that we should be looking for to determine, like, maybe I do need to step back. Maybe I do need to take a break. Maybe there is something else going on here. So what are some of the things that you would, you would say we should look for? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. Like if you're having, if you're spending some time with the Lord uh, in the Scripture, and 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 you um, see a verse and you're like, oh, I need to tweet that verse, or you have some, you know, you write something in your journal and you're like, oh, that's really good. I should tweet that. Probably something's gone wrong there. Like you just lost the 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 audience, right? Uh-huh. That you, you you just moved away from. Um, I'm spending time with the Lord to now I'm, I'm promoting my spirituality. Um, so I, I think that's one thing. I think when you um, find yourself retweeting compliments, um, if someone compliments you and you retweet it, or you try to figure out some way that I can have others read that compliment without me looking like I've retweeted it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a big time issue when you, um, start reporting ministry success on Twitter. Um, and, 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 and you know, deep down that I'm not doing this, uh, because people are curious about what God's doing in our midst. I'm doing this because I want people to know what God's doing through me. I I want him, I want people to know about the success of my ministry. And I'm not saying that you can't with a real pure heart tweet some 
thing that God did in your ministry. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think we know deep down um, what I'm hoping this accomplishes, right? Uh, so, I mean, I've seen people tweeting about, hey, I just shared the gospel with someone, pray for him. And I'm like, man, I, I'm, I'm glad. But don't you have a group of friends that like, you know, and fellow pastors that you can text that to that actually yeah. know that person too and are involved in their life? And why have you moved this out of a localized context and turn, turned it into a, use social media as a global platform to talk about what you're doing um, in that moment for God? And yeah. so, so I, I think those are some things that, and again, I think, I think we've so demeaned as pastors the, the beauty of the local church, shepherding the flock of God among you, that we just are constantly, uh, you know, just looking over, again, looking over the heads of the people that God's put right in front of us um, and, and trying, to, trying to create name and brand recognition beyond that. And so, uh, you know, I think social media is a huge, it, it's, it's Matthew 6. It's Jesus saying, look, when don't practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by men. There's your reward. And so I think Twitter has robbed so many people of rewards that God had for them uh, be, and because that they wanted the glory that comes from men uh, more than the glory that comes from God. Well, I think one of the things that I appreciate <clears throat> is, is just the way that you really this is a, is a, is a matter of, of individual people's hearts and everyone needs to examine their own heart because I know that for myself, when I, when I look at other people and I'm judging, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're told that like we can, we can tell someone by their fruit. And so Mm -hmm. there is a sense in which we are supposed to, when the, when the, the, to look at and judge fruit by what we, we see happening, but what we don't know is motivation and what we don't know Mm -hmm. is heart. And I found for myself, I'm curious what you think about this. Like when I, when I tend to look at somebody else's tweet, um, I for sure think like the, the, the retweeting of compliments is like, is weird in like any universe. I just find that to be very, very interesting. Um, but oftentimes I've, if, if I'm honest, when I look at somebody else's tweet and I judge motivation, I'm importing like if I were to say that, or I would were to do that, that's what, that's what it would mean for me as opposed Mm -hmm. to turning that question on myself and looking inward and saying like, well, you know, what, what, what's motivating what I'm doing, what I'm saying. So I, I wonder like how, how, what are some practical ways that we can steward social media for God's glory? And without it like turning in on itself and really being yeah. about us. Cause I just there, I'll be honest. There's a part, there were moments throughout the week reading through your book where I'm like, screw social. I, I can't have anything to do with social media. <laughs> uh, so, so what, what are, what are some things that you think about or questions that you're asking? Like, how do I ensure that I'm really am stewarding this in a way that brings, cause it is a tool when you agree, like it yeah. is at the, while there are pitfalls, it's, it's got amazing reach and opportunity. So yeah. how do we steward that? in a way that, that really does bring God glory and not us. Yeah. Well, you raised an, you may raise a really insightful point um, that oftentimes our assumptions of people's motivations reveal our own. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that was um, a way quicker, way better way to say what I just said. Uh, <laughs> well, it's sort of like you look at someone and you go, look, that person, if they're as jacked up as I am, this had to have been their motivation when they did it. Right. Yes. So it, it, probably does reveal more about our motivation than someone else's. So, so yeah, I don't want to give the impression in the book that, um, that you shouldn't promote 
your, your ministry, um, because for instance, your podcast, um, it's helpful, you know, uh, I don't know if this one will be, but, uh, most, <laughs> no, most, you know, the podcast where you bring guys in the room and you talk about some things that's super helpful. Uh, I listened to the first one with Chandler. It was very helpful. Um, and so you're, you're genuinely trying to help, help pastors. So I think if you've got a group of people in your life, uh, that are asking you the hard questions and you're making sure that you're measuring the right things, um, you know, so we, we typically measure things. I, I think that, that are, uh, kind of theology of glory versus theology of cross. Um, so I think if you got a, if you got the right people in your life, asking you the right questions, holding, holding your heart, um, you know, in, in a, in a way that's causing you to question your motivation, I think that can be healthy. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do things in your ministry that promote. So for instance, I see guys who write books and then they promote their books on Twitter. I don't think there's anything wrong. If they believe in the message of their book, they should want people to, to, to read it. You know, um, one of the things I've wrestled with is how do you promote a book on glory hunger? You know, yeah. so, so, yeah. uh, but, but I, but so I'm not, I want to be, I want to be careful that I'm not saying, um, I'm not saying we shouldn't uh, use social media to advance what we think God's called us to do. Uh, but I think you've got to have some people in your life that are asking you the hard questions and, and holding you, holding you to that. And, and I think um, being willing to promote others ministries as passionately as your own, because this is about the kingdom first, not my personal ministry. Um, I think if you can, if you get so focused where you find that the only thing you are promoting and pushing uh, is the stuff you're doing, then I think that's a real dangerous place to be in. That's good, man. Well, the title of the book is Glory, Hunger, God, the Gospel, and Our Quest for Something More. It's going to release January 31st. Uh, it's available already for pre-order on Amazon, isn't it? Yes. And yes. I'll have the uh, link to that in the show notes. JR, thanks so much for taking the time to do this and for the conversation. It's given me much to think about. And uh, I really do. I'm, I'm going to help promote the book for you. So <laughs> you don't have to be in that weird spot of tweeting about your own awesome book. But it, it, but it truly great. is exceptional, man. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate you, uh, the opportunity to come on, Ryan. Thank you so much. In talking with JR and reading his book, I was reminded of how important it is to always be asking myself why I do the things that I do, all the way down to like the things that I tweet. Asking myself, am, am I trying to gain attention here or make people think something good about me or am I really trying to serve and shepherd people toward Jesus? I don't begin to have that all figured out, but I sure am thankful for the helpful direction that's been provided by JR in his new book, Glory Hunger. Uh, if you want more content like you've heard today, there's plenty more on my blog at ryanhugley.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at ryanhugley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We're going to be back next week with episode number 10 and my conversation with Justin McRoberts. We're talking about his new book, Title Pending, that's all about the creative process. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>